We are in uh, week four of a series called Jesus, the True and Better. And uh, if you're here as a first-time guest, you're probably wondering, well, what does that mean, Jesus, the True and Better? And here's what we've been doing. We've been looking at Old Testament characters and, and stories, those narratives in the Old Testament. And we've been looking at how God is in the midst of those stories showing you a Savior to come. And so like a lot of people, if you've ever opened your Bible, you've read through the Old Testament, you're like, oh my goodness. What is all of this about? And you feel like it's either a big history lesson or you feel like you're hearing some like poetic language like in Psalms or uh, in Proverbs or something like that. And although there may be a nugget of truth, you're like, I don't really understand all this. And then you get to the prophets and they're talking to a nation of Israel and they're saying things. You're like, I don't get any of this. And so you just kind of camp in the New Testament because you're like, I do believe in Jesus and I do understand a little bit of what Paul wrote. But like for the most part, many of us, we look the Old Testament, we're like, what is the point of all of those books? Because what you have is 39 books, 17 of them are historical, five are poetical, and 17 are prophetic. And you're like, what in the world is going on here? But what we've been showing you throughout this series is the Old Testament really does matter. And even as you read these stories, as you look at these narratives, that you can see that they are simply a type of a Savior to come. And so, the Old Testament is basically a story about a nation. That's the nation of Israel. And out of that nation would become a man who would save people from their sins. And his name is Jesus. And so that's who we're going to be talking about today is Jesus, the true and better, as we examine the story of an Old Testament character. And so in week one, we looked at Adam, and we saw that Jesus is the true and better Adam, where the first Adam fell short in the Garden of Eve, uh, Eden, uh, under the best of circumstances, we see that Jesus held what to the true test in the Garden of Gethsemane as he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And when he said, Lord, is there any way that this cup could pass for me? And he says, but hey, if I have to take the cup of wrath, then may it be. So that's the key. Um, and so you see that. And then you get to Joseph. And we spent two weeks on Joseph. And we see that Joseph was a, a man that was loved by his father, rejected by his own, sold into slavery, put in a pit only to come out of it, presumed to be dead, though he lived among the Gentiles. While living among the Gentiles, anybody would come and find refuge in him. He would give them life and food and strength. Just as Jesus said, anyone who hungers after me, he says, I am the bread of life. He said, if you come and you're thirsty, he said, I will give living water. And so for us as Gentiles, we find refuge in him, just as the Gentiles would find refuge in him. One day, the nation of Israel would turn to what, Joseph, and they would find him in their time of need. He would reveal to, him, to his family at the proper time who he was, and that's going to happen for Israel. And so if you've missed those first three messages, they're up online. I encourage you to go uh, and just kind of review those and so kind of make a little bit more sense to you. But today we're going to dig in and we're going to look at a story of one of Israel's greatest leaders. Matter of fact, the Israelites... And even Jewish people today would say that the greatest leader in the entire nation that they ever had would not be just David, although they believed he was a great king and he was the king among kings, but it would be a guy named Moses. And so Moses is their beloved leader. But even Stephen, uh, a guy who was stoned in Acts chapter 7, he even challenged the people in Jesus' day. He said, you claim to love all of these people that the forefathers loved. He said to Abraham, he said, you claim to love him. 
And he said, and then you've got Jacob and you claim to love him and Joseph and, and you see all that God did there and you claim to love him. And he said, and then God raises up a guy named Moses. And he said, and you claim to have loved and followed him. And Moses did a lot of things. He interceded for us as the people of Israel. He went to God on behalf of his people. He even went to Pharaoh and he asked for the people to be let go from their bondage. And he said, and you claim to love him. You claim to be looking for one to come that's like Moses. But he said, you've even rejected them. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen asked the Sanhedrin, this council of men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said this one question. He said, looking back at all the forefathers of Israel, give me one that y'all have not rejected. Give me just one that you haven't been obstinate towards. Give me one that you haven't spoke illy of or given a hard time. And he said, and here it is, the one that's come like Moses, the Messiah, he said, you've rejected him too. You've spoken harshly to him. He said, you've even murdered him. And in Acts chapter seven, it says they pick up stones and they hurl them at Stephen. So why do I tell you that? Because Moses is the leader that Israel loved. And in the day that Jesus showed himself to his people, he revealed himself to them. He was rejected. And Stephen one of the first martyrs in the early church and even one of those first people who would follow Jesus, he pointed out to the people of Israel, he said, you are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. You are like your forefathers were. And he said, you've rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Moses today, a guy who is a type of the one to come. And so if I were to say to you, who is the one who was born and upon his birth, there was an evil king that wanted to have him killed. He was hidden away in Egypt for a period of time, ultimately to be revealed at the proper time. And upon being revealed, you would see that much of his life was hidden from you in the early age. You would see more of the story later on in his life. At the later part of his life, he would come and he would take and save people from the bondage that they had been enslaved to. Who is that? Moses, Jesus, one and the same. And that's only the beginning. And so if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, we're going to dive into this text in Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible with me or with you, then uh, we would love to get you one as you leave today. You can go to our resource counter and uh, one of our volunteers will get you one. Uh, we'll provide it for you up on the screen. Now, are y'all ready for this? We're going to read a lot of scripture, so you better hang on and hold tight, but I promise it's going to be good all the way as we go. Verse 1, <clears throat> now the, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Now in Exodus chapter 19, you see that Moses goes up onto uh, Mount Sinai and he meets with God and God is going to impart to him the law. And if you look in Exodus chapter 20, you see that the law is given to Moses, the Ten Commandments. 
And then in 21, 22, 23, God is just going to impart truth to him that he's supposed to bestow among the people. Things uh, on how they're supposed to uh, act and how they're supposed to uh, do things throughout the tabernacle and all of the things that God wants him to prepare for his people. He meets with God and God shows him all of those things. So while he's gone and he's meeting with God, you come to this chapter 32. And in verse one, it says, the people look to Aaron, his brother, and they go, where's our leader gone? He is not coming. He must have gone away. Come, let us make some other God. Because if our God is, you know, if our leader's gone away and he's not coming back, then let us worship something else. And so in verse two, Aaron says, tear off all the gold rings which are on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took it from their hands, he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you from the land of Egypt. Do what? So Israel has a leader who has gone to meet with God and they believe and presume that he is gone and may not be coming back. And they say, so let us make a calf in the image of gold and let us bow down and worship him and even declare this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And even then you begin to see where their hearts are, this rebellious, stiff-necked people. And so the leader is meeting with God and this is... We, what we see. Now Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now people began to grow leery and skeptical of Moses in his absence. Is there another one to come that the people of Israel longed to see, and they believed he would never come? His name is Jesus, Yeshua, the one to come. And they will grow weary in their absence. And matter of fact, from the time of David, about a thousand years before Jesus would ever come on the scene, God told David, he said, I'm going to make a new house for you, a Davidic house. And from the line of David is going to come the one true Messiah. And a thousand years later, when Jesus enters the scene, Stephen addressed it, Jesus addressed it, Everyone addresses the issue that he has come among his people after a long period of time. And guess what? In that time, they had turned to other things. With the exception of a remnant of people in the Sanhedrin, Pharisees and Sadducees, most of them were living under Roman rule and they were giving themselves over to many gods. If you remember when Paul goes and what does he go to the city of Athens within Greece and and even people there and he's starting to talk to people and they have all of these images made out everywhere. And that's what everything would eventually become. A group of people, not only the early church, but the Jewish people of that day who had given themselves over to all these detestable things, detestable practices in the temple, outside of the temple. Their hearts were far from God. They were wicked and they were deceitful and they had forgotten that God was going to send a leader to the people. And would God send a leader? Yes. Just as he would send Moses to the people out of Mount Sinai, God is going to send to the Israelites a new king, a king that will reign forever. Yes. His name is Jesus. Look at verse seven. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once. For your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, and they have quickly turned aside from the way in which I had commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, and they've sacrificed it and have said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make you a great nation. He goes, Moses, that is a stiff-necked, obstinate, rebellious people down there. He says, they have already made a golden calf. They're worshiping, sacrificing it to it. And he goes, I'm going to obliterate them. I'm done. I'm done with them. I'll start over with you. I can't help but think the flood, right? I mean, he promised he had never flood the earth again, but he never said, I can't just smote the people and start over with you. Yes? And that's what he says. Moses, I'm done with them. I'm going to smote all of them, and I'll start over with you. And in that moment, from really verses 11 through 14, Moses begins to plead with God. And he says, God, what would it look like for Egypt. All of them are going to mock and jeer, not only us, but they're going to mock and jeer you. What's it look like, God, for you to be father and Lord of all? You're Yahweh, the one true God, and you save people out of their sin and and out of their bondage in Egypt only to bring them across and then smote them? It's like, what kind of God would people think you are? Like you would bring them out of this incredible bondage just to kill them? He goes, please relent on your anger. Please relent on your anger. And so God does so, and he relents. But he says, I want you to go down to the people. And so Moses and his partner, okay, Joshua, begin down the hill. And they begin their descent. And as they're descending, you see in the following verses that they begin to hear something. And Joshua says, it sounds like war. And as they approach the camp even more, he goes, no, 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 it's singing. And we pick up in verse 19, and it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger burned and he threw tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Now, let me ask you a question. Here it is. God plans to send a leader to his people who pleads on their behalf. And he goes and upon seeing them, he's going to smash the tablets who else would come later that God would send to his people? And unless God sent them, he would have to judge them harshly because without sending this leader, this one true leader to what speak on behalf of the people that God may relent in his anger and his judgment, that without that, they would not be saved only to come. And what he does is smashes the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Who is that? Jesus. And so just as Moses descends the mountain, so would Jesus descend from his right-hand seat at the throne of God. And he would come in what Luke 2, as God in the flesh incarnate, to what lay as a baby on this day in the town of David, in the city of Bethlehem, has been born to you a Savior. You are to wrap him in swaddling clothes, and he will be placed in a manger. And his name is Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua the one true salvation, the one who would lead Israel and speak to God on their behalf, even though they're a stiff-necked, rebellious people. Sound familiar? 
One leaves the mountain, one leaves the right hand of God. He comes among the people. One in his anger burns and smashes the tablets. One in his love comes and he smashes the law. And he says, what you have, what, broken, I will fulfill and I will make right. Then look what Moses does. And then he takes the calf of verse 20 that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it into power and he scattered it over the surface of the water and he made the sons of Israel drink it. And so they had this graven image, this gold image that they had bowed down, they had worshiped to, they'd even proclaimed things like, oh, we're going to worship the God that brought us out of Egypt. And he takes it and he burns it, he grounds it into powder and he says, now put this in your water and drink it. You think, like, you think that they came up with something new when they were giving you that powder to put in your water? Moses actually started that, okay? <laughs> and it was, the, it was the first diuretic, okay, is what it was. And uh, it was, it, not only would it cause their bowels to move, it would cause them to hurl. And they would throw up, and, and they had it literally coming out both ends. And Moses says, if you are going to be a stiff-necked, rebellious people, if you're going to worship other things, then I want you to be reminded of this. And they would be reminded of it. But the problem was, is this, is that even though you remind people through consequences, if their hearts don't turn, it doesn't matter what the punishment is. The only way things change for your children, for you, for anyone that struggles with sin is not another consequence. It's their heart to be changed. And we know that the people in Israel, their hearts would not always be changed. Look what happens. Verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered quickly to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate into the camp and kill every man his brother, every man his friend, every man his neighbor. You're like, what? Do what? Yeah, he goes, hey, here we are. You've bowed down. You drank this stuff, you've hurled, I hope you're reminded. Now let's make a statement today. If you're going to follow me as I follow the Lord, then he said, you come over here. And he draws this line of the sand, almost like sand lot. You know, like if you're on this side, get over here with me. And here they come. And the sons of Levi follow and the rest of them. And he goes, I want you to go through the camp. And they go through the camp and look what happens. 3,000 men, verse 28, fell that day. And so 3,000 men in God's anger and in his judgment to the people fall that day. Then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today for the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. Do what? You have gone against your father, your mother, your brother, so that God may bestow a blessing upon you today. Huh? Like, like are y'all even reading this? Are y'all with me? Like, this is not a nighttime story that you tell your kids. Like, you don't get to, hey, t- let me tuck you in bed tonight and tell you about how God killed 3,000 people one day. But why does he do it? He does it so that he can be a blessing to his people. 
But you go, well, that doesn't make sense. And oftentimes, if you were debating with your friends in the office and you're talking about um, Merry Christmas festivities, all these different things that are, are happening, you go, hey, isn't it interesting? I was reading at church the other day about how God is gracious and how he's good and how he wants to be a blessing to his people. But yet he had the Levites go throughout their camp and slaughter 3,000 people that day. And isn't that a war that's being waged throughout the Old Testament? Like for many of you, like if God is supremely good and he's all loving, then how could he have people kill 3,000 people. And the reason why is this, is because God judges sin. Always has and always will. He does not take delight in your evil. He rejoices with truth. And there was sin in their camp. And what's interesting is this, is that he would call the most faithful men to his leader. Yes? Moses says, if you want to follow me, come over here. Here's the line drawn in the sand. Jesus says, deny yourselves, take with the cross and follow me. And what's interesting is if you look at the gospel narratives, when he had bread to offer, they showed up. Two, two fish and five loaves and 5,000 came. On another occasion, 4,000 came. And he what could draw a crowd. But when it got down to the line of the sand and he said, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, then he said, you got you to gotta deny yourself, take the cross and follow me. The crowd got a lot more scarce. Yes? Why? Because there's a cost in leaving your life of sin and following Jesus Christ. Here's what's interesting too. Just a side note that I think is interesting. Do you remember in the early church when the Holy Spirit fell on them and they had how many believers added that day? 3,000. And so it's almost as if God would take and redeem something. Yes? How does he do it? He does it through a leader. That would be what? Obedient. Yes? Yes? Yes. What's interesting is this, is that a lot of the people in Israel thought that they were following in obedience. But Jesus actually addressed it in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, he says, oh, you, you claim guys to love Abraham as he's talking to uh, the the." the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you claim to love. And he goes, we do love him and we follow him. And, and Jesus goes, no, I don't really think so. And he says, well, what are you calling us? Illegitimate children? Like you're saying that we're really not children of God. And this is what Jesus says in verse 41 and 42 of John 8. He says, you are doing the works of your father. We are we are not illegitimate children, they protested. And then he says, the only father who is we have is God himself, right? And then look what Jesus says, verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I have come here from God and I have not come on my own. God sent me. And Moses says, God has sent me to you. I was meeting with him, but I came so that he doesn't just kill you in, your ju in his judgment. I have come, will you follow me? It draws a line in the sand. Jesus says, will you follow me? Deny yourselves, take the cross, follow me. Then look at verse 30. On the next day, day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. You see what he does? He goes to the people, and then he says, you have done a bad thing. You're evil. Will you follow me? 
after they say, I'm going to follow you, he draws a line of the sand, he judges, he goes, it's best that I go and I mediate on your behalf. I'm going to go back up to God and I'm going to, what? I'm going to try to atone for what's gone wrong in your life. Then Moses returned to the Lord, verse 31, alas, the people had committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, Lord, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot out me, my name, from your book, which you have written. Do you see what he does? Are y'all with me? Unbelievable. If you will not forgive them, forgive them by forgiving me. Blot out my name and redeem them. Do a transfer. If if you're not going to save them based off of what they've done, save them based off of what I've done. God, because you say that you love me. You say that you love me. And he says, my presence will not go with you and I will. He says, my presence shall go uh, with you. No, where am I at? 33, the Lord said, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book, but go now, lead the people where I told you, behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day I will punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. And he says no to Moses's request. He says, no, the people will get what the people have gotten. That's what's coming to them. You're mediating on their behalf, but I'm going to give them what they deserve. Unbelievable. Yes. And then if you read Exodus chapter 33, one through six, it says the journey continues. And he says, in a sense, he says, you can go up to the land of the promise. You can go all you want. You can go into the the land that's flowing with milk and honey, but you won't experience its bounty. And more than that, you will not have my presence go with you. I'm not going with you because of your wickedness, because of your disobedience, because of that stupid calf, that golden calf you made. He said, I'm done. I'm not doing it. And Moses, the great mediator and the great leader, he just keeps up in his persistence. But before he keeps up in his persistence, which you're going to see in verse 12, you see this obscure little text kind of fit in there. And look at verse 7. It's kind of a weird text just sitting there. And you're like, I don't really understand how it fits in the passage, but I want you to look at it. We're going to read it anyway, but look at it. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of the meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent of the meeting was outside of the camp. And it came about whenever Moses was out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of the tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and, and, and stand at the, uh, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And so Moses would go outside of the camp. So here it is. You get this? You have a leader who leaves the mountain, goes and meets with an obstinate people. He says, if, if you'll follow me, then I'll speak on your behalf. He goes up, speaks on behalf. He says, God, would you please transfer their sin to me? Blot out my name from your book. Save your people. God says, no. They continue on this journey. And then all of a sudden you come to this obscure place in the text where he's going, I, he goes out to the camp and meets with God. He goes outside of his walls. He meets with God. A pillar of smoke rises and all the people see it. 
And look what happens when they see it. Verse 10, And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And where it says he spoke to the Lord face to face, that's, a, that's actually not like face to face, because we know that John says no one has seen God at any time. Even Moses will request later in this chapter to see God's face, and he says no. But what does it mean? It means that he has an intimate conversation with God. He meets with God. He experiences God in a fresh way, and he does it outside of the camp. When he does it, all the people rise in their tents, and they worship God themselves. Then verse 11, then the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as the man speaks to his friend. Look at the latter part. And when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Now you, you go, fantastic. What does that have to do with this text? Like, do you understand what I'm talking about? Because look at verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you'll send with me. Moreover, you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. He goes, God, I'm trying to seek forgiveness for the people. I'm asking you to transfer their sin to me, but you won't. And then he goes, God, I'm going to continue speaking. In verse 12, you see can, the conversation continues. Like he's continuing that. He's like, God, please, please, please forgive my people. Please, God, go with us. Lord, how am I going to go if you're not telling me who's going with me? And then you got this weird like seven, you know, and following and sitting there. And here's the question, why? Well, here it is. It's huge in this narrative, huge. And Moses, the writer of this text, put it there for a reason because it was God inspired. Here it is. He goes outside of the camp to meet with God. And I don't think we understand that completely until you read Hebrews chapter 13. And look at it, verse 11 and following. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside of the camp. He said, those, those animals ultimately are burned outside of the camp. They're taken outside of the camp to be an appropriate sacrifice. Understand? Got me? And then he says, therefore, in, or in the same way, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach, for we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city in which is to come. We are looking for the city which is to come. How do you experience all that God has for you? You experience it through the leader, the mediator of Israel, the high priest Jesus who died and was sacrificed outside of the camp. Where did Moses have his most intimate meeting with God? Outside of the camp. Where did Jesus have his absolute most essential and most ex incredible experience, all inspiring and intimate meeting with God outside of the camp? Why? Because outside of the camp, he would lay his life down for his friends. Yes? And so Jesus is the greatest sacrifice ever known. And just as Moses would go to the tent of meeting that he established outside of the camp and he would offer sacrifice and love God and worship God there in spirit and in truth. Jesus says that there's going to be a day, even as he speaks to um, those in John chapter four, that there's going to be a day that we experience God in spirit and in truth. 
And how do we do that? Through Jesus Christ, the true and better Moses. Yes? What an obscure text there. But here's the deal. You can't have the rest of the narrative without someone going and offering sacrifice for the people outside of the camp. Yes? Then look at the narrative as it continues. Then Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know when, when you will send with, uh, send me or who you're going to send with me. Moreover, you said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know that your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this is a nation that's your people. He says, Lord, we need you. Like we need you. We need your presence. We need all that you have. In verse 14, he says, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And in all of the mediating that Moses does, God says, I'll go. Okay, I'll go. I'll forgive the people and I will go with you. Now, is that incredible for a leader? Like here it is, you see that you go down to rebellious stiff-necked people, they're worshiping things that they shouldn't worship, you're sending a message to them, you go back up to the mountain, you're going to mediate on their behalf with God, you make sacrifice for God and for the people outside of the camp, you continue to worship God, you see him, you know him, you're intimate with him, and then ultimately one day he says, I told you no originally, but now I'm going to go with you. I'm going to give rest to the people. Who is it that came and said, if you're heavy or weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest? Who is that? Jesus, the one who made sacrifice for you outside of the camp. Yes? Who says, I'll go with you. I will go with you, that I'll never leave nor forsake you. Yes? Then verse 15, then he said, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Moses says, if you're not going, I'm not going. Because God, I cannot do this without you. Isn't that actually the interesting thing here in this narrative too? That after the sacrifice and after God says, I will go with you, that he says, you don't have to go up without me. I'll not leave you. I'm not going to, and Moses declares, he says, I can't go without you. And then verse um, 16, for how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. How in the world are you and I known by name through Jesus Christ? And in God's anger against sin and his judgment and the penalty that we owe, he says, I will relent on you, not based off of who you are, but based off of who Moses is, and in our case, who Jesus is. The only reason that you and I don't get what we deserve is because what? Jesus is good. Yes? That's the only reason that you and I are able to move forward. And so Moses pleads on behalf of the people, God relents. Then look at this. Y'all ready for this? It's about to be even better. Then Moses said, I pray that you'll show me your glory. Get this. He's meeting with God. God goes, I'll go with you. And in that moment, like that's like, that's like being elected to this incredible place 
And he's like, oh, yes. I mean, he's just incredible high. Like, he's been pleading with God, mediating on behalf of this obstinate, stiff-necked people. And God finally goes, I'll go with you. And in that, he's like, okay, well, will you show me your face too? <laughs> like, I mean, that's it. Like, he's mean. He's like, will, will, will you show me more of you then? And, and look at what he does. He says, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. He said, if you saw me, you would be consumed in my holiness. That's, that's what he's saying. And then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me. And if, if you will stand there on the rock, it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Who is it that went outside of the camp and made sacrifice that was hidden in the cleft of the rock? Moses, Jesus, put in a tomb only to what? See God, meet with God, rise again in three days. Moses would come. He would see the back of God because he couldn't see the face of God. And then look what happens. That's the end of chapter 33. Chapter 34, you see uh, the covenant is renewed. God establishes this new covenant uh, with the people and, and just the continuation of what he's already said. And then you get to chapter uh, 34, verse 29. And I want you to see as Moses is going to begin to descend again to the people, look what happens. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand and he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of speaking with him. And so when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Who else was it that after coming out of the cleft of the rock that people didn't recognize him because he shone so brightly? There was something different about him. Do you remember the two Marys go to the tomb? Jesus speaks to them and they go, where's Jesus? And he goes, he's gone. He's risen. And they don't even recognize him because his appearance is different. John says his appearance is different and he even says that one day, what? We're going to have a new glorified body. We're going to look different. We're going to be a little bit different. Why? because of a new heavenly glorified body. Moses comes down off the mountain and he looks different. Jesus looks different after being in the cleft of the rock, rising three days, nobody recognizing. Yes? And so you go, wow. Luke 24, 37, when Jesus came out of the tomb, those who saw him at first were frightened. Aaron and the, the people in the assemblies in Israel go, whoa, 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 wait. Put that veil over your head. It's, that looks weird. You're different, man. That's, that's scary. Why? Because they had met with God. Why did Jesus die? He met with God. He did something that you and I could not do ourselves. He mediated on our behalf. Why? Because he is the perfect leader. He is the high priest of Israel. He is God's chosen leader. He is the Messiah. He is God's salvation. Yes? Amen. And so you are ready to close. But I'm like, I want to show you something here. Because I always like, okay, it, it, lots of information, lots of good stuff. You go, wow, wow, wow. Awesome, awesome. Okay. But I think there's something here that we need to see. 
Do y'all remember that obscure kind of place where he would go outside the camp and he would worship? Yeah, it's pretty important. Let's read it again, picking up verse 9. So flip back if you got your Bibles. <clears throat> I want you to see this. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would ascend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of the cloud stand at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his own tent. Do you see that? That's the key. Look at that. Each at the entrance of his own tent. Moses would go meet with God, and you, the people of Israel, would stand at your own tent and worship God. When Jesus went outside of the camp, when he was killed on Golgotha, when he gave up and committed his spirit to the Lord, and he says, I declare it is finished. When the veil was torn in two, he said, no longer do you have to go to a temple to worship me. You now can stand at the tent of your own door, and you have all of God that you need. Every bit. Like, see, many of us are confused by that because what we think is this, is that we, we believe that if, if we come to church and we'll experience God, and that's what we've become accustomed to doing. We, we come, we sing a few songs, we raise our hands, we go, oh, that was pretty decent, good Bible study, that's awesome. Then we go throughout our week, and we're fine with that, we're content with that. But the problem is that's not the way that God designed it. God designed it that Jesus would make a sacrifice and he would free you up to not have to, what, just abide by a Sabbath day worship, but that you could live in the presence of a holy God. That you could adjourn with him, whether you're at home or whether you're at work, whether you're at school or you're on vacation, wherever it is, the spirit of God goes with you and he will not depart from you. Yes? And that's where we are. Essentially, God wanted us to not find him simply in a place of worship like a church, but he wanted us to have a great week of worship wherever we go. Over the last, I would say, probably eight months, we've been looking at some trends kind of going on at Stone Point. And, and every year at this time, we're basically like, hey, if y'all don't mind, invite people, but also, you know, let's Find a you know, park deeper, you know, further away so guests can get a little closer. Hey, make space for people. It's really crowded. And this fall, we, we really have not seen that. Like, we, you haven't heard us say, hey, you know, we really need to do this, this, and this to help, you know, whatever. And what we've noticed is in the last really six or eight months, we've actually started to decline in many areas. We've declined in lots of different things. We've declined a little bit in giving. We've declined in attendance. We've declined in commitment of volunteers. Like we're just, and every single week we look at each other like, what in the world is going on? Like what's going on? And we talk about it and we talk about it. We talk about it. And it wasn't until recently that we pinpointed what it was. Like we we really pinpointed what was going on. And here's what we've discovered. And this is what we've determined. We're asking people at Stone Point to make great commitments. Like, great commitment. Matter of fact, one of the things that I've heard a knock on, like in town, I've, I've heard it, you know, like our town's small, you know, it kind of rings, like it bounces off, like it, it comes from here and it bounces off, it kind of does like a little reverb, it hits Edgewood and it comes back from Canton and it comes back like full force, you know what I'm saying? It's the, the, the ring, like a pinball machine. And people don't really like the commitment that we ask people, like it, it's too much, it's too much. I, I've... I thought you were just no perfect people. And I thought we'd just kind of come and do, you know, what? no, 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 no. Anybody's welcome to come. But when Jesus redeems your life, you don't continue to sin that grace may increase. 
And then you don't say, I love you, and then, but I don't have anything to give you or serve, or I don't have much time to give. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel actually says, Jesus goes outside of the camp to make a great sacrifice for you. Because you love him and you're obedient to him, and you say, I will leave my life and follow you, then I am willing to worship you and love you, and I'll serve you any way possible until you come back and receive you unto myself. That's what the gospel says, and that's what we're committed to. And what we found out is that there's a lot of people that aren't committed to that. And we found out why. Here's why. You ready for it? I don't know if you are. You ready? What we've discovered is this. You cannot be committed to something at a church building that you're not committed to at your own tent. If you won't worship God at home, why can we expect our volunteers to worship him devoutly here? Why can we expect people to commit more of their time to something that asks them of great sacrifice when they won't do it at home? And that's what we found. People who you, we struggle in all the issues that we're talking about, whether it be attendance or reading your Bible or prayer or whatever it is, like you look at your life and you go, as a Christian, it, my life stinks. I really wish I would work on this. Or I really wish I would work on this. Like, and you have your own area. You know what I'm talking about? The reason that it struggles is because it's not a commitment at your own tent. And so we've discovered that over the next year, we are going to ramp up really in the next three years, a plan we're putting in place just for the family, just to remind you that where God moves here, it has to first develop at your own home. There are tons of people, even in this room that you know your Bibles, but your marriage is falling apart. You know your Bibles, but the bottom line is your finances are a disaster. You know your Bibles and you point out every other flaw in everybody else's life, but your kids are far from God. And the reason why is because you did not do a good job at your tent. God has done his job to the sacrifice outside the walls, but you are supposed to stand and proclaim him at your home. Amen? Amen. Well, that's not the best part. That's just extra. Look at the best part. Look at this, Okay. And Moses, after meeting with God and seeing him face to face, verse 11, just as a man speaks to his friend, he would return to his camp and his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. And it's already an obscure place, like in that narrative, you're like, okay, I don't even know why this is there. Now we know why it's there. And then, then you get, and then Joshua, son of Nun, a young man never departs from the tent. And it shifts from a typology of Moses, the true leader, to a typology of Joshua, a true and better leader. Because Joshua would take the people of Israel in where Moses fell short. Moses falls short in the law. Yeshua, Joshua, God's salvation takes him on through. Yes? Moses shatters the law. Jesus shatters the law, says, let me take you on through. He does it through Joshua. He does it through a true and better Joshua, Jesus. Matter of fact, Joshua, his name is the same as Hosea's name. It's the same as Jesus' name, Yeshua, God's salvation. He's the son of none. Why do you care? Who cares? The son of none. Because the son of none means he's the son of posterity, the, the son of eternity. Never ends. Future generations keep going, 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 going. So you mean to tell me Yeshua, the son of eternity, a young man came and he would not depart from the tent? Not depart from the tent. Yeah, you like you read it, like, not depart from the tent, not depart from the tent. What do you mean? What do you mean? What was, what was God's promise 
Jesus says, it's best I go away and I'll send a more suitable helper for you. It's here in Acts 17. I'm going to close with these four or five verses. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not, a, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole, inhibit, uh, and inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And some of you, as our own poets have said, we are his offspring. God said, I'll make a sacrifice for you. And as I do, you can stand at your own tents and I'll never depart from you. I'll live in you. I'll abide in you. I'll give you everything that you need to live a life sufficient and worthy of the gospel. Not by your own means, but by mine a more suitable helper called the Holy Spirit. Pretty cool? A true and better Joshua. Amen? And so we have much to be thankful for because God is good. And even in Old Testament narratives, he speaks of man who would leave and go to a rebellious people, give them a message of reconciliation, call them to repentance, go back, mediate before God, be hidden in the cleft of a tomb, only to rise three days later. After rising three days later, what? God would make mediation for all the people who would follow him, call after him. He would give them new life. He would renew a covenant with them, make a new and everlasting covenant. His name is Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for <clears throat> this morning, and we thank you, Father, for this text. And uh, Father, I just pray that we, we recognize this. And I know that there's lots of verses and lots of information Father, I don't know how anyone could read this narrative and not see you in this text. I don't know how anybody could read the narrative of Adam or of Joseph and not see how you're moving all throughout the Old Testament. And so, Father, I pray that as, as we, this body of people here, move forward in our own lives, that we would not neglect you. And, Father, that we would not miss all the ways that you're speaking to us. Lord, you speak to us through your word. You speak to us through people. You speak to us through prayer. And Father, for me and my house, Lord, we want to surround ourselves with people who are committed to those three things, to your word, to prayer, and to godly people and fellowship. And so, Father, help us to, to live for that. Help us to look different. That, God, after we've met with you, that we go about, and everyone that sees us sees that we're different, that we've been changed. Lord, not only was that the command and ultimately the truth for Israel and what Moses desired, but that's what we should desire because Jesus is our true high priest. Father, I love you. I thank you. I pray most of all that as this Christmas, as we buy gifts and we go from party to party, from family outing to family outing, that we would not ever forget that you live in us. As John 1 says, you've tabernacled among us. You live in a tent with skin. That's us. And you give us all that we need to live a life worthy of the calling. In Jesus' name, amen.